episode 31. A food wonderland. I feel like a child again. Shopping in a new place in our tiny state. Bewitched and bewildered am I. Greetings and welcome in to the Patuxent General. I am your host, Jess. This week is super refreshing. I just thought that this week would be a good time to give us all a little break. How about a Thai iced tea? Sweetened and decadent, just like at the restaurant. So good, perhaps it will inspire you to visit your local place. Since we're living it up a bit, how about a lovely grilled shrimp skewer? Stay tuned to the end of the episode for this week's gardening tip. But first, I must thank our Patreon subscribers. These succulent fin fish are the giant bluefin tuna to the tiny family fishing vehicle that is the Patuxent General, without whom we would surely be up a creek without a paddle. So if you would like to become such said valuable folk, you could follow the link in the show notes to our Patreon page. For your donation, you will receive extra content, photos of our recipes and drinks, and copies of our recipes. So join our fleet. But first, let's talk about Thai iced tea. Thai iced tea. This entire adventure is thanks to my eldest, whom I asked, what is your favorite drink? Well, that sent me down a rabbit hole like no other. I've had this tea every time I went to my local Thai restaurant, Rim Nam. It was always refreshing, but what did I know about it really? Well, just about nothing. Now I know there are different flavor choices, presentation choices, and even preparation choices. Honorable mentions are for sweet lime iced in a bag in a box and pouring from one pitcher to another for as few as five or as many as 20 times. That one blew my mind. I chose the way I received it in Rhode Island for nostalgia's sake. Thai restaurants around the world have several most popular brands to pick from. I chose Pan Thai Thai Iced Tea Mix. It got the most attention. Then all I needed to do was get some. It's the modern age, you say? Ah, true. But supposedly only Amazon will deliver this to my door for a two-pack for $23 plus. That is too expensive for way too much tea. I'll never drink all that. Luckily, just the week before, my good friend A had said that a local market, the Good Fortune Market, had all the roots I was looking for fresh turmeric, ginger, and the like. So I checked their webpage in English because I am embarrassed to say I do not speak or write any Asian language, a failing of my own, and found that they carried not only the tea brand I was looking for, but on sale for five bucks. So Dad and I set out. He asked the street, and I said Cadillac. He retorted that he knew exactly where to go. His dad had taken them there in his youth. He was right. He took me right across a bridge that I didn't even know existed. We went down an empty road near the train tracks, and then we got turned and saw this gigantic building, a market and a restaurant in one. When we parked, I could read the advertisements on the side of the building for lobsters, and they had a competitive price for peak season. This was intriguing from the outside. But once I went inside, everything changed. On our left was the kitchen. Most of the Go Foods were barbecue. They were huge and amazing, grilled, smoked, and gigantic. They were hanging there so golden and perfect. Dad was distracted and checked out the ducks as well as the barbecue and vast assorted pre-cooked options. 
When I turned right, I saw dry goods shelving. It was my turn. There was no trouble finding the tea aisle, but it took a good bit of searching for the tea itself. On the bottom, way on the left, there it was. Dad and I window shopped the rest of the day in all. Finally, we made our purchases, promised to return for another trip. For this coconut cream version, you will need one cup of hot water, four tablespoons of iced tea tea mix, one tablespoon of sugar, ice to fill your glass, a tea sock or a coffee filter in a funnel, lime or coconut creamer, depending on if you want it with a zing or with milk. Add tea to the hot water, let sit three minutes, then strain through your tea sock or coffee filter. Mix sugar in very well, then put it into an ice-filled glass. Top with coconut creamer and watch the drama slide down the glass. Perfection! Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going back to the Good Fortune Market for one of those ducks. Grilled Shrimp Skewers So, the perfect complement for that sweet creamy tea is a lightly spiced, savory and sweet shrimp served on the best delivery system known to man, the stick. You need one hand free to drink tea. For this recipe, you will need one pound extra large shrimp, deveined and peeled, two garlic cloves crushed and chopped fine, two tablespoons grapeseed oil or your favorite oil, salt and pepper, one half teaspoon cracked red pepper, zest and the juice of one lemon, two tablespoons of honey. In a bowl, Mix together zest, juice, garlic, oil, cracked red pepper. Don't forget the honey, salt, and pepper. And give it an enthusiastic whisking and set it aside. Now for the skewers. If they are wooden, you should soak them for four to 10 minutes before using. At this point, you can put them in the marinade. Just five minutes ought to do. Then grill or saute them for two minutes on each side. Voila! Then relax with your hands full and enjoy. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his Electromagnetic Pinball Museum and Restoration Arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. And to continue our House on the Corner series, a reading of the case of Charles Dexter Ward, Chapter 5, Section 4. In another moment, he was hastily filling the burned-out lamps from an oil supply he had previously noticed. And when the room was bright again, he looked about to see if he might find a lantern for further exploration. For racked though he was with horror, his sense of grim purpose was still uppermost. And he was firmly determined to leave no stone unturned in his search for the hideous facts behind Charles Ward's bizarre madness. Failing to find a lantern, he chose the smallest of the lamps to carry, also filling his pockets with candles and matches, and taking with him a gallon can of oil, which he proposed to keep for reserve use in whatever hidden laboratory he might uncover beyond the terrible open space with its unclean altar and nameless covered wells. To traverse that space again would require utmost fortitude, but he knew it must be done. 
Unfortunately, neither the frightful altar nor the open shaft was near the vast cell-indented wall which bound for the cavern area, and whose black mysterious archways would form the next goals of logical search. So, Willette went back to the great pillared hall of stench and anguished howling, turned down his lamp to avoid any distant glimpse of the hellish altar, or to the uncovered pit with the pierced stone slab beside it. Most of the black doorways led merely to small chambers, some vacant and some evidently used as storerooms, and in several of the latter he saw some very curious accumulations of various objects. One was packed and rotting with dust-draped bales of spare clothing. The explorer thrilled when he saw it was unmistakably the clothing of a century and a half before. In another room, he found numerous odds and ends of modern clothing, as if gradual provisions were being made to equip a large body of men. What he disliked most of all were all the huge copper vats which occasionally appeared, these and the sinister encrustations upon them. He liked them even less than the weirdly figured leaden bowls whose rims retained such obnoxious deposits and around which clung repellent odors perceptible above even to the general noisiness of the crypt. When he had completed about half the entire circuit of the wall, he found another corridor like that from which he had come, and out of which many doors opened. This he proceeded to investigate, and after entering these rooms of medium size with no significant contents, he came at last to a large oblong apartment whose business-like tanks and tables, furnaces and modern instruments, occasional books and endless jars of shelves and bottles proclaimed it was indeed the long-sought laboratory of Charles Ward, and no doubt the old Joseph Kerwin before him. After lighting the three lamps which he found filled and ready, Dr. Willette examined the place and all of its opportunances with the keenest interest, noting from the relative quantities of various regents on the shelves that the young ward's dominant concern must have been with some branch of organic chemistry. On the whole, little could be learned from the scientific ensemble, which included a gruesome-looking dissecting table, so that the room was really rather a disappointment. Among the books was a tattered old copy of Borellus in black letter, and it was weirdly interesting to note that Ward had underlined some passage whose marking had so perturbed good Mr. Merritt at Kerwin's farmhouse more than a century and a half before. That older copy, of course, must have perished along with the rest of Kerwin's occult library in the final raid. Three archways opened off that laboratory, and these the doctor proceeded to sample in turn. From his cursory survey, he saw that two merely led to small storerooms, but these he canvassed with care, remarking the piles of coffins in various stages of damage and shuddering violently at two or three of the coffin plates he could decipher. There was so much clothing also stored in these rooms, and several new and tightly nailed boxes which he did not stop to investigate. Most interesting of all, perhaps, were some odd bits that he judged to be fragments of old Joseph Kerwin's laboratory appliances. These had suffered damage at the hands of raiders, but were still partially recognizable as the chemical paraphernalia of the Georgian period. The third archway led to a very sizable chamber, entirely lined with shells and having in the center a table bearing two lamps. These lamps were let lighted, and in their brilliant glow studied the endless shelving which surrounded him. Some of the upper levels were wholly vacant, 
and the other with a single handle and proportioned like a lair jug. All had metal stoppers and were covered with peculiar-looking symbols molded in low relief. In a moment, the doctor noticed that these jugs were classified with great rigidity, all of the tall being on one side of the room with a large wooden sign reading Custodes above them, and the others correspondingly labeled with a sign reading Materia. Each of the jars or jugs, except some on the upper shelves that turned out to be vacant, bore a cardboard tag with a number apparently referring to a catalog, and Willette resolved to look for the latter presently. For the moment, however, he was more interested in the nature of the array as a whole, and experimentally opened several of the Lacthoi and Flairlands at random, with a view to a rough generalization. The result was invariable. Both types of jars contained a small quantity of a single kind of substance, a fine dusty powder, a very light weight, and of many shades of dull neutral color. To the colors which formed the only point of variation, there was no apparent method of disposal, no distraction between what occurred in the Lecthoi and what occurred in the Flarelorons. A bluish-gray powder might be by the side of a pinkish-white one, and any one in a flarillon might have its exact counterpart in a lectheos. The most individual feature about the powders was their non-adhesiveness. Willette would pour one into his hand, and upon returning it to the jug would find no residue whatsoever remained on his palm. The meaning of the two signs puzzled him and he wondered what battery of chemicals was separated so radically from those glass jars on the shelves in the laboratory proper. Custodes, materia, that was Latin for guards and materials, respectively. And then there came a flash of memory as to where he had seen the word guards before in connection with this dreadful mystery. It was, of course, in the recent letter to Dr. Allen, purporting to be from old Edward Hutchinson, and the phrase had read, There was no need to keep the guards in shape and eating off their heads. And it made much to be found in case of trouble, as you know well. But what did this signify? But wait, was there not another reference to guards in the matter which he had failed wholly to recall when reading the Hutchinson letter? Back in the old non-secretive days, Ward had told him of the Eliezer Smith diary recording and spying of Smith and Whedon on the Kerwin farm. And in that dreadful chronicle, there had been a mention of conversations overheard before the old wizard took himself wholly beneath the earth. There had been, Smith and Whedon insisted, terrible colloquies wherein figured Kerwin, certain captives of his and the guards of those captives. Those guards, according to Hutchinton or his avatar, had eaten their heads off. So that now Dr. Allen did not keep them in shape and if not in shape, how save as the salts to which it appears the wizard band had engaged in reducing as many human bodies and skeletons as they could? Thank you once again for joining us here at the PG. If you would like to contact us for a booking to find out where our most recent pop-up general store is, this week we're at Tag Sale Treasures on Broad Street in Cranston, Rhode Island, on Saturday from 10 until 2. 
Or, if you would like to tell us your ghost story, our email is jess at patuxetgeneral.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. Now, this week's garden tip. Salt marsh hay. It's a great mulch, and the seeds only germinate in salt water, so it keeps weeds out as well. Every little bit helps. Come back next time for more tips, recipes, and a few ghosts at the Patuxet General. A Something for Posterity production. Pre-recorded in Patuxet.